me out of respect for the Word of God and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 9. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to those who are spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able yet, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. May God add his rich blessing to the reading of his word. Let's call upon him for help to understand his word. Father, we pray that you would give us uh, the energy and the strength mentally to observe your words. With all of our hearts, help us, Father, to seek after what you have inspired, what you have revealed about yourself. For we know that in these words are life and truth. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to hear what you have to say, that you would help us to embrace it, that you would help us to lay it up in our hearts, and that you would give us a willfulness to follow after all that you have commanded and not swerve to the right or the left, but to live in obedience for the glory of your holy name. And so to help us, send forth your Holy Spirit, who alone can open our eyes and illuminate this truth to our hearts and minds. This we ask through Jesus. Amen? You may be seated. Well, it's probably due to me gearing up all week uh, for UFC 97 last night that um, mixed martial arts metaphors have been on my mind in order to help me illustrate what I'm trying to get at here this morning. Watching a number of the pre-fight interviews and shows about some of the fighters, it reminded me of just how diligent and how hard it is to train for these bouts. They show these gentlemen getting up early in the morning, going out to run, and coming back, eating a very precise diet, and going back out to train for an hour at boxing, and they drive across town and go try train another hour or two at, at jiu-jitsu, and then they come home and they eat another planned out diet meal, and then they go back out and they do another couple hours of sparring and advanced training, and they do this every single day for weeks and weeks in order to get ready for the big fight. And the reason why they go through all of the pain, all of the hard work, all of the sweating, all of the injuries, all of the frustrations that go into preparing for an enormous fight like this is because they value what they're doing. They value the opportunity to fight in a ring. As strange as that may sound to many of us, it's a value, and because it's a value, that directs their life. They act according to their values. That's just a general principle of life. That's how things work. People generally 
act according to their values. And the Apostle Paul isolates that as a theme that he wants to take up here in these verses as a critique. He says that the Corinthians indeed are following this general rule. They are acting according to their values, but the problem is their values are all wrong. Their values are all wrong. You can see here as the Apostle Paul connects what he says here back to what he said in the context that Paul is still uh, tracking down this problem of division within the Corinthian church. He says in verse 3, You are still fleshly. And he says, For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Now, that word there, strife, is the same word that the Apostle Paul uses back in chapter 1, uh, when he says in verse 11, I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. There are conflicts. There are agitations. And the people of God are lining up against each other and are engaging in debate and strife and quarreling. Now, Paul has been uh, taking up that problem and viewing it from a number of angles. I don't want to repeat all that he has done in order to uh, work with this problem, work this problem through with the Corinthians, but he comes back now to that same problem from a very different angle here in chapter 3, and he exposes another part of the problem. He exposes another reason for why these Corinthians are fighting and quarreling, and as he does that, he exposes another reason to us why it is that Christians often experience conflict and contention in the church. Of course, the reason why uh, they are engaging in this kind of quarreling and strife and controversy is because they have all the wrong values. Uh, You can see what their values are as Paul lists them in verse 4. He says, uh, when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Paulus, are you not mere men? We've already gotten into this before, but what the Corinthians were doing, as we have said, is that they were lining up behind their favorite apostolic superhero. And they were identifying with them. And uh, they were attempting to build their spirituality around them. Their thinking around the insights of these men. And as they did that, that caused division. That caused a camp in the church who was of Paul. That caused another part of the church that said they were of Apollos. There was another group within the church that said they were of Cephas. And another that said they were of Christ. And perhaps uh, those are just examples of the way in which the church was dividing up and lining up behind other kinds of leaders. But the end result of this dividing was that they started to fight with each other because they were promoting their team, if you were, above the others. And Paul says, when you do that kind of thing, Corinthians, you are valuing the wrong things. And those wrong values are then leading to a series of actions which are divisive and sinful. So Paul exposes that problem here in our passage, and he also uh, corrects it by setting forth what the right values are, which lead to the right actions. And the right value, obviously, is listed or uh, set forth here in verses 6 and 7. It's to value God's system, God's plan, God's way of building His church, and that is through the instruments of men, but ultimately by the sovereign, gracious work of God in bringing His people to Himself and then nourishing them spiritually through the Word. And we're going to begin, as we open up this passage this morning, uh, by noticing what the problem is. Why is it that they're valuing 
the wrong things, and then that valuing of the wrong things is leading to conflict and division in the church. And the answer is that they're spiritually immature. Uh, Paul really spells that out in fairly plain language here in verse 1. When he says, uh, Brethren, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. In three different ways there, the Apostle Paul underscores the spiritual immaturity. First of all, he says that they're not spiritual. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not regenerate. He's not saying, I don't believe you're Christians. Obviously, he does believe they're Christians because uh, he said back in chapter 1 that he was rejoicing in the great grace that had been given unto them by uh, the sovereignty of God, that they had been enriched in Christ and every spiritual uh, gift. He goes on to uh, enumerate a number of spiritual qualities that he sees in them, that he rejoices in, that he knows are there because God has been gracious to them. So he's not saying that they're unregenerate. What he's saying is they're acting like they're unregenerate. He's saying you're acting like people uh, who are not under the control of the Holy Spirit. And we can see from Paul's use of this word in other places when he doesn't use it in a negative sense. He says here he would like to speak to them as the spiritual, but he cannot. And I just want us to see from Galatians chapter 6 what spiritual people are like. Uh, those who are spiritual, the Apostle Paul says, help other people out. Galatians 6.1, he says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. You see, uh, what Paul is saying there in Galatians, that there are some people in the church who are inevitably getting caught up in their sin. And he said, the way to deal with those kinds of people is to not humiliate them. It's not to embarrass them. Uh, It's not to abuse them with words and beat up on them rhetorically. Uh, The strategy for dealing with people who are falling off into sin, who are straying away from Jesus Christ, is to have the people who are spiritual, that is under control of the Holy Spirit, come alongside them and lead them out of their temptations and their trials and their sin. And to do so with gentleness. In other words, they're to do that with maturity. These are people who are mature in the Lord Jesus Christ, And they're acting accordingly. But Paul says, I can't speak to you as spiritual. And then he goes on to contrast that in another way. He says, but as to men of flesh. That is, uh, to people who are absorbed with the impulses and desires of people who aren't in Jesus Christ. Obviously that's going to vary from culture to culture. But it's essentially a life that doesn't have God at the middle of it. It's essentially a life which, instead of having God in Christ at the middle of it, places our own desires at the center of that and begins to slavishly uh, worship and follow those desires instead of God. Here, uh, their particular problem, which is the evidence of their, their fleshliness, is that they were identifying with people who they believe gave them significance to their life. So they followed the leaders who were of Paul, or they followed the leaders who were of Apollos, and they believed that by following those people and associating with them and getting in, uh, in tight with that particular group uh, filled their life with significance. Paul says that's worldliness. That's being like the men of the flesh do things. And then he finally says, I had to speak to you 
not as to spiritual, but as to men of flesh. And finally, as to infants. Not a very good translation here, uh, because it doesn't mean a tiny baby. It means a little child, probably three to four years old. It says the way you're acting is not uh, adult-like. It's not even teenager-like. You're acting like little children at daycare, fighting over toys. Well, that's the first line of evidence that the Apostle Paul gives us here, that the problem in Corinth is spiritual immaturity, and now we see the evidence of that spiritual immaturity in verses 3 and 4 when he says, You are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? And then the connection here of ideas in verse 4 when he says, For... When one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Paulus, are you not mere men? You see, in other words, the way Paul strings together the ideas here in verses 3 and 4 is to say, here is the example of spiritual immaturity. Yes, you're uh, full of jealousy, you're engaging in contention and strife and conflict, and that's fleshly. But Paul says, here is the problem, really. He is specific about it. He says, when one says, I am of Paul, another says, I am of Paulus. In other words, what he's trying to say is that their actions are revealing their immature state and condition. He says, it's utterly immature to sit around uh, claiming, I am of Apollos group, I am of the Apostle Paul group. So I'm better than you. And finally he gives us the reason for this immaturity in verse 2. He says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. And indeed, even now you are not yet able. You see here, Paul says, the reason why you're not more mature in your Christian life is because you can't receive more instruction. You can't receive uh, more of the implications of the gospel message, but the reason why they can't do that is because they're acting so immaturely. It's almost a circle. It's almost like a dog chasing its tail. There's There's a reason why they can't grow into this state of maturity. It's because uh, they refuse to learn. They refuse to learn because they're mature. And round and round it goes. And it could be that here they are accusing or criticizing the Apostle Paul for being uh, really not a very good teacher who's just only able to impart the basic ABCs of the faith. And it could be that they're using that as an explanation or accounting for why uh, they are following after uh, the Apollos's who are in Corinth, or the Cephas's, or the Jesus group. It's because, uh, really, Paul is only giving them milk. He's not giving them the meat. And Paul's explanation for that is, well, the reason why, if I haven't gotten deeper into the implications of the Christian faith with you, is because you're not able to receive it yet. Because you're acting like children. Their immaturity causes them not to be able to grow in knowledge which is again in turn an evidence and manifestation of their immaturity. How do we apply this? I think that's the key, as I've been thinking about this passage all week. It's, uh, what are we to take from this? Because the Apostle Paul, after all, is talking to a specific church in a specific historical context and situation. And 
I believe what the Apostle Paul is doing here as he is exposing the problem to the church in Corinth, why uh, they're experiencing these divisions and the jealousy, the strife, the contention, the immaturity, I think at the same time he opens up a window for Christians so that they may see and receive instruction about how they are to act or to not act. And I think the first thing that we should draw from this passage here this morning is, as the Apostle Paul reprimands them for the immaturity, I believe, first of all, the application of the passage of the church today is that it's not okay to be spiritually immature and be a Christian. It's not okay to be spiritually immature and to be a Christian. Now, I want to qualify that just a moment. It, it, it is okay at one level if you're just new to the faith. But God's not unreasonable after all. It is okay in a sense if you're young in years and you're just going through catechism and you're just learning, you're just now receiving instruction. It is okay if you've come to the faith later on in life and you really didn't know much before. And so now you're submitting to the catechism and to the instruction and the discipling of the church. It is okay for a time for uh, Christians to be in that state of immaturity. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that these Corinthians should not be there anymore. They're beyond the Sunday school age. They're beyond the catechism age. They are a time in their spiritual life in which they ought to be acting like mature, spiritually mature Christian adults. It's not okay if you are a Christian, to remain in that state of spiritual immaturity anymore. We could take an analogy from from the natural world. In the case of parent-child relationships. Parents understand that there is a time in their children's life where their child will be immature. They understand that. The, the early years of their life, which are full of excitement and bonding, instruction and learning about the world, that those children are going to be immature and they're going to behave in ways that are immature and sometimes wrong or embarrassing. And they understand that because that's natural. That's all part of the normal human development. But no parent expects their child to remain immature the rest of their life. It's the goal of most parents to have their children move out of the house. That's just the truth. Parents don't feel terribly successful, at least in our culture, uh, when their 30-year-old children are still living at home and they don't have a full-time job yet. And they're just sitting in the basement uh, playing video games and watching old movies. They don't think that's mature. You see, there's a reasonable expectation that there will be real growth within the life of the child. And that real growth will be manifested in going to school, getting an education, getting a job, and being financially uh, self-supportive. That's the sense here. That's what Paul is revealing here by this rebuke. Uh, It's not a commendation. It's a rebuke of these Corinthians here. Because he's saying you are acting in a way that is contrary to how you should be acting. You should be growing into maturity. You should be coming spiritually mature Christians who are wise and discerning, and you're using that discernment and that wisdom and that acquired knowledge to learn how to live together in peace and harmony and to learn how to live for the glory of God as you go out into the world. Why is Paul so concerned about this? Why not just leave them alone? Why not just allow these Christians to sit in the Corinthian church and duke it out week after week after week after week? Why not? 
Well, the reason why is because to be spiritually immature is dangerous for you. To be spiritually immature is dangerous for Christians. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 14, he says, Don't be children any longer. Don't be children any longer. Why? Because it says, Children are tossed by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, and they are susceptible to being tricked and deceived. It's spiritually dangerous to be immature in the faith. It makes us susceptible to trickery and deception, to believing false doctrine. And when false doctrine is believed in and absorbed spiritually and then attempted to be something that's lived out, it causes all kinds of problems in the spiritual life, just as it is happening here in Corinth. And so, of course, Paul's remedy to that situation of spiritual immaturity, even among the Ephesians, is to say, grow up. Literally, that's what the original says in verse 15. Grow up! Because it's so essential to our spiritual condition. So the first application of this passage to our church here this morning is that God calls upon us to seek to grow into spiritual maturity. Or you could put it in a negative way, it's not okay to remain in a state of spiritual immaturity. The second thing that we learn here from this passage is that it's possible to evaluate your spiritual maturity level by how you live. A very important lesson emerges here from our text as well in the connection of ideas in verses 3 and 4. You can evaluate your level of spiritual maturity by how you treat others. That's his point in verse 3. He can tell that they're immature in their faith because they're riddled with jealousy, which in turn is generating nothing but strife and conflict among the believers in the church. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is, I'm giving you a principle, I'm giving you a tool to evaluate yourself this morning in terms of your progress in the Christian life. We can tell whether you're maturing in Christ by how you treat other people. Look at your life. Are you the kind of person that can nurture and foster long-term relationships? Or are all your relationships crumbled in pieces? Do you drive people away because you're irritable and harsh and unloving? Are you the kind of person that harbors jealousy and tends to harbor jealousy towards other people and are waiting for just the right moment to get your revenge? Are you the kind of person who sacrifices for other people? Are you the kind of person who gives to other people and doesn't just constantly take? Are you the kind of person who enjoys encouraging and building up other kinds of people? Or do you view relationships from a very selfish, self-centered perspective that the relationship is all about you? You see, all of that, of course, flows out of the principle of the second great commandment. We're not only to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, but Jesus goes on to say, and the second one is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm here to say that loving relationships are not the kind of relationships where it's all take, all receive, and never give. And I have to say that I am disappointed. I am disappointed that 
many of us in our Reformed churches sometimes act too much like the Corinthians. Those who would pride themselves on the depths of their doctrinal knowledge and insight into the great truth of Scripture, and yet on the other hand, it seems sometimes that that knowledge never has a practical bearing and application on the Christian life. It's too much contention, it's too much jealousy, it's too much striving, it's too much, it's too much striving and fighting against each other. And so what Paul would call upon us to do is we evaluate ourselves in view of the principles here that he expounds upon in chapter 3 is to evaluate our growth, our spiritual growth by how we treat other people. And if we're not quite where we think we should be, and only you can answer that question, then what this passage calls upon us to do is to be honest, to tell ourselves it's not okay to remain in that condition, and to learn how to love our neighbor as ourselves, and to start working at building mature, solid relationships where we give and enrich and help and be a blessing to others. Well, the third application of the principles of this passage here, found in verse 2, is that a growing in spiritual insight and in spiritual knowledge is based upon a growing in maturity. Here's another reason why it's not okay for the Corinthians to continue on in spiritual immaturity. And the reason why it's not okay is because they cannot advance in doctrinal spiritual knowledge without maturity. Look at how Paul says it again here in verse 2. He says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not able to receive it. You see, the problem the Apostle Paul says is not with me. The problem is not that I don't know how to teach. The problem with me is I don't have enough depth of insight of the Christian doctrines. It's not that you didn't have the opportunity to access to the truth. He says you weren't able to receive it. And they weren't able to receive it because they are acting fleshly. They are acting spiritually immature. He says they are acting like mere men. And I'm sure that must have been a terrible uh, reproof and rebuke to these people because they were Greeks. They thought of themselves as being smarter than most people. More sophisticated. More educated. More intellectual more culturally advanced. And to have the Apostle Paul talk to them like their little three or four year old children must have been, in some sense, a real offense to them because it was shocking that people would perceive of them in this matter. But Paul says, I can't treat you as mature adult Christians because you don't act like them. And because you don't act mature, I can't teach you past where you are. Of course, the principle emerges here from our passage is that uh, spiritual knowledge, growth in spiritual knowledge and truth is inseparably connected to spiritual maturity. Again, I think uh, that goes somewhat contrary to how we perceive things sometimes in our Reformed context. It's often thought that uh, what we need to do in order to grow in knowledge is to go buy a whole bunch of books at the Christian bookstore. To find out the, the, the latest or newest book that's being published. And let's go read that and, and read more and more books and Christian magazines and listen to podcasts on the internet. And just keep 
cramming more information in our head. And somehow, uh, by doing that, we'll grow into spiritually knowledgeable people. And what I find happening more often than not is that we're not producing more spiritually mature people. We're producing people who have a lot of facts in their head, but not a lot of depth in their hearts. And then often those very same people who've read more books than are on most bookshelves, who've listened to more R.C. Sproul podcasts than uh, we have room for in our MP3 players, are the very people who become conceited, are the very people who become bored, are the very people who are apathetic towards other Christians, are the very people who generally don't lift a finger to help around the church, who are generally the kinds of people who don't take much interest or time to get to know other people and to be a blessing to them and show them real love and engage in conversation and develop relationships. They often become very isolated and the only kinds of interaction and contact they can have with other people is about the information they're learning so that they always look smart. And then the tragic situation is that when they get tired with that whole game of learning and sharing with everybody how much they're growing and learning and how smart and smarter than they are everybody else, too often they just simply leave the church because the excitement of learning and acquisition of knowledge has become boring. And the truth is they really never did know anything. One of the greatest things I think I ever took away from seminary is that I felt like I knew less when I left than when I came. I feel like I knew less when I left than when I came. And it's not because I didn't learn anything for three years. It's because I began to understand how rich and complex the truth is and how humbling it is to sit under people who have far more knowledge than I have and to sit in a library and read books and books and books and books by people who have 50, 60 years of scholarship behind them. You begin to realize you really don't know anything. See, it's a humbling process to learn. What Paul's driving out here with these Corinthians is they may be able to uh, boast of all kinds of spiritual gifts, which we're going to have to get in the chapters 12 through 14. They have all kinds of gifts. They speak in tongues and they prophesy. And, uh, they are a congregation that, congregation that has been richly blessed with spiritual gifts. But the problem is, they haven't been maturing. And it's led to a terrible imbalance. And that terrible imbalance has led to great division. And Paul's point to them is that you can't grow in spiritual knowledge and insight and wisdom without at the same time growing in spiritual maturity. That needs to be a goal for us. Not just to learn, but to learn to live. To learn to live. To learn how to be productive Christians. To learn how to be loving Christians. To learn how to be the kinds of Christians who are capable of being a blessing to others. And to loving them and building them up. So Paul diagnoses the problem here in Corinth from a different angle. Now he says that a piece of the problem in terms of why they are treating each other with jealousy and strife is because they simply value the wrong things. In their spiritual immaturity, they have boasted in their the deep knowledge of their teachers. And yet they have spent very little time maturing and growing in terms of the practical application of truth to their own life. 
Now as we look towards the end of the passage here, the Apostle Paul reorients their values and he says this is really what we need to aim at. He says that spiritual immaturity is remedied by valuing God's order. Now we'll be able to grab hold of the point if we see the passage in view of its context. And what Paul has been uh, attacking, and I again repeat this, is that they're lining up behind their various teachers and they believe that by uh, valuing that teacher and valuing that group of people who line up behind them, that they have become uh, more spiritually mature and advanced. And they're almost treating their teachers and their pastors and their leaders as if they are some sort of superstars. Uh, that's the only conclusion that I can draw from the way the Apostle Paul uh, goes on to uh, reorder uh, their priorities here, beginning with verse 5. You see, he says, some of you are saying, I'm Paul, and I'm Apollos. And then in verse 5, he says, well, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Are they not servants? You see how the Apostle Paul is undercutting that, uh, the problem there. They're, they are, they're coming together around these teachers as if they, uh, by their superstar status, somehow mediate to the people in the group some special spiritual privilege that makes them more advanced and, and better Christians and better people. And what the Apostle Paul says, okay, I'm Paul. What is Paul? What is Apollos? And the way he does it is very interesting. He doesn't say who. He says what? He refers to himself as if he's just an it, an object, an instrument. You see, he's saying the very people that you're exalting as if they're superior uh, morally and intellectually and spiritually are just its. They're just objects. We're just instruments, he says. And more than that, he says, we're servants. We're servants. Do you know what a servant was in the ancient world? A diakonoi, as Paul says that he is, it was somebody who waited on tables. Just a servant. There's no star power in that. We're just servants, he says. But special servants. Notice how he puts it. Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to each one. You see, he says, don't magnify the person, but at the same time appreciate the function, the whole point of why there was Paul and Apollos and Cephas and other apostles and, and pastors now throughout church history, is to not magnify the person, but the office and the way that God uses. He says, uh, these people, Paul and Apollos, are the kinds of people who God uses to preach the Word, and through that proclamation of the Word, God has ordained to work faith in the heart of His people. That's what makes them something. But we only understand our teachers in a correct way if we understand that God has ordained them to a particular task and function and has pleased Himself to work through that. And so the whole force of the argument then is designed to undercut this, uh, this very spiritually immature and yet damaging way of looking at their teachers as if they are some exalted people and then by seeing that that teacher is their teacher, uh, they somehow acquire some great significance themselves personally. Paul says, no, 
They're just servants. And then he really narrows down the focus here in verse 6. And he says that really, it's not about the servants. It's about God. And this is where he reorients and reprioritizes their values. He says in verse 6, I planted and the polis watered, but God was causing the growth. Then he says in verse 7, So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but it's God who causes the growth. And then in verse 9, he reminds them again, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. I hope you see here the accent and the emphasis of the Apostle Paul. It's all about God. You see, these people who are so used to admiring themselves by looking in a mirror and and imagining themselves to be such spectacular and great and mature and advanced and deep people because they had Apollos as their teacher, Paul shatters that mirror and he says, it's not about the mirror, it's not about your reflection, it's not about Paul, and it's not about Apollos, it's about God. And you won't have your values straight in life, Corinth or people of God, until... God is at the center of your life and of your vision. That's Paul's point. When your vision is clouded with nothing but the human horizon and earthly figures of significance, or at least we think are of significance, he says you're not in any place at all to grow into maturity and to be useful in God's service. Because in Christianity, in the church... It's all about God. Look at the minimal roles he gives Apollos and Paul, an apostle. He says, we're just planters. We're just farmers. None of the things that we do would matter or uh, be any use or produce any kind of effect unless it was God who came alongside their ministry and caused the increase. You see how it reorients the values of the Corinthians? He says, here's what the value. Not the star power of your pastor. It's of no spiritual value to you if your pastor is being interviewed on uh, Larry King Live. It's really not. It's of no spiritual value to you if your pastor has, has published uh, best-selling books and sells over millions and millions and millions of copies of them. It's of no spiritual value at all. It's really of no spiritual value to you if you go to a church that has 10,000 people there on a Sunday morning. It's of no spiritual value because what really makes any of this work is not the man, but God who uses His Word to cause the increase. It's not the champagne lifestyle of the pastor. It's whether he preaches the word and whether God uses the word to cause growth and increase in the heart of the person who hears it. Yeah, you, you evaluate the leader and the, the preacher or the pastor by the principle of faithfulness. Are they doing the task that Jesus gave them? Jesus didn't give pastors the task of becoming cultural superheroes. Jesus did not give pastors the task of of being media personalities. 
Jesus gave preachers probably one of the most menial, humble tasks you can imagine. Which is to take a book, to read it to the congregation, and explain what it says. Jesus never said you have to have a good stand-up comedy routine in order to make that Bible come alive. Jesus did not say you have to have a vivid uh, imagination in order to draw people into the passage and, and through your power of framing rhetorically uh, all of the possibilities of the passage that you'll make it come alive to them. But Jesus didn't say that you have to be uh, great emotional storytellers in order to jerk tears out and to make people smile and laugh and go through a whole range of emotions. He just said, take this book and preach it. And you know what? He never promised results. That's the humbling and strange and mystifying and confusing and frustrating thing about all of it. He never promised that if you did it right and faithfully, it would produce a great following of people. You know, Jesus himself is, in a sense, a model for that. Stood up in John chapter 6 with thousands upon thousands of people listening to him and hanging on his every word. And by the end of the afternoon, there were 12 left. Because he told the truth. And those who heard the truth said, this is hard. In other words, they said, this is abrasive. You see, whether God uses the ministry of a pastor is entirely up to him. One may labor and be used by God to reach thousands. And one may labor tirelessly and faithfully and never convert a single person. But you see, the the difference is not in the pastor or the minister or the leader or the style. But rather, it's in God who gives the growth. What Paul is saying to the church at Corinth and to us this morning is that we need to keep our sights focused on the God who gives the growth. You have faith this morning? It's because God gave the growth. Are you able to embrace uh, these, uh, the scriptures this morning as true and about Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who gave himself to die on the cross for our sins? Are you able to do that? Well, if you are, it's not because of the pastor. It wasn't because he was terribly imaginative or, or even powerful in his rhetoric. It was because God gave the increase. You know, if the church really, 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 really believed that, it'd be a lot less fighting, it'd be a lot less jealousy. A lot less innovation, for sure. It'd be probably fairly simple. The problem is, for too long, too many have decided that they need to help God out. Add a lot of things that would make people feel something, or do something, or experience something. The fact of the matter is, it's not about what we do. Not about the planter. It's not about the waterer or the irrigator. It's about God. We hear about that this morning. I I hope that what we'll do is 
see what our duty is then. Our duty is to orient our values towards the one that Paul lays out here. It's God-centered. It's God-focused. And it commands us to do something. It commands us, instead of harboring jealousy and bitterness and vengeance in our heart and engaging in strife and quarreling in contention, it gives us a pretty clear command. It says, work. Plant and irrigate and pray. That God would give the increase. I hope that that is our perspective as we walk away this morning, people of God. That we will be renewed in the commitment which we have because of the grace which has been shown to us. And because we have been saved by God's grace. Because He has opened up our hearts and minds to hear the truth. Because He has caused the Word to produce fruit in our soul spiritually unto eternal life. Then our calling then is to orient our values in the way Paul does with the Corinthian church. And then to be busy serving Him out of gratitude. Planting and irrigating in hope and prayer that God will give the increase. Let's pray.